Our lesson this morning is from Romans 6, verses 1 through 12. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Pray with me. Father God, we are so thankful to you for your word because your word brings life. It is a light into our feet and a lamp into our path. And Father, we pray this morning that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will illuminate us. You will make it shine brightly in our hearts and that you will reveal your truth to us in the depths of our souls. And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This time of year, I, I always look with interest at how the secular world watches the Christian world celebrate the Easter season. And I actually use the, word, the phrase Easter season deliberately because Easter is one of those words that we use very easily, but mostly we've kind of forgotten its, its truly ancient meaning. Easter comes from a very, very, very old English word that means to rise or to get up. And so when we're talking about Easter Sunday, we're actually talking about the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and got up. And that's a very impacting way to describe a single day on the calendar. And as an aside, that's one of the reasons that the the evangelical church is reclaiming the word Resurrection Sunday, because the word Easter has lost its punch. And when the secular world looks at, at us as we celebrate Easter, you won't hear a whole lot about the risen Christ, because the secular world doesn't really know what to do with a risen Savior. As you read the news and watch the news this week, you may hear observations about this being Holy Week. You may even hear some reference to to Good Friday, the the day in which we as Christians believe that Jesus was crucified, was dead, and buried. Because the secular world does not have a problem with the historicity, the historical validity of someone named Jesus of Nazareth. And likewise, the secular world doesn't really have a problem with believing that he died a martyr's death. But the secular world doesn't know what to do with Easter Sunday. 
And the truth of the matter is, that's largely because we, in the Christian church, focus very heavily on the cross. After all, we use it to decorate our sanctuaries. I don't think I've ever been in a, in a, in a Christian church where there's been an image of an empty tomb. We see the cross. We wear it around our necks sometimes. We don't have an image of the empty tomb. And as we celebrate Christmas time and look forward to Jesus' coming, and, and as we enter into the Easter season, a lot of our scripture focuses very heavily on Christ's work on the cross. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, we read, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That is one of the most important prophecies that looks forward to the coming of Christ. And this was spoken by Isaiah some 700 years before Christ was born. But it clearly points to the work that Christ would do on the cross to save those he came to save. Likewise, at the beginning of his ministry, we read in John 1, verse 29, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist prophesied that, that Jesus would assume the role of the sacrificial lamb, the lamb who would take away the sins of the world, the lamb who would suffer a sacrificial death, atoning for our sins. And it's proper, of course, that we focus on the cross because without it, we're enemies to God. Romans 5, verses 6 and 8, we read, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's so many things that we say in the Christian church, we sometimes say them and we forget how, how sharp the words really are. As my friend Rich Wagner is, is wont to say, the amazing thing about God's love is that he loves us so much, despite the fact that he knows us so very well. And even as Christ hung on the cross, he knew the sins that someday each of us would commit. And he died for us anyway. And because of his death, we, are, we stand before the throne justified. Paul explains for us in Romans 5, 17 through 19 what that actually means. We are not simply declared not responsible for our sin debt, although that in itself is, is amazing. Jesus paid the debt that we owed. He died the debt that we deserved to die. But if all Jesus had done is he, if he had simply died on the cross and paid our debt, we would stand before God sort of morally neutral. But the amazing thing about justification is that not only does Jesus pay our debt, but through God's grace, through our faith in the works of Jesus, we actually are declared righteous. The righteous works of Christ are imputed to us as if we had done them. So not only are you not guilty of your sins, but you get credit for the, for, for the holy and righteous life that Jesus himself led. 
And so someday before the throne of judgment, we will stand there, and rather than seeing all the things that, that I have done or failed to do, God Almighty will look down and he will see the very works of Jesus Christ. That is astonishing, people. And it's for that reason that Paul, in Romans 8, verse 1, cries out, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand what that means? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you understand that, and if you get that, it changes everything about who you are and how you look at your sin and how you walk around day by day. Because there's no condemnation. And if God Almighty does not condemn you because you have, you have been justified through faith in Christ, what kind of self-image should you have? It liberates you to be the child of God that God would have you to be. But brothers and sisters, as amazing as that is, we don't stop there. Because you see, we are not simply declared righteous in the eyes of God. You see, while Jesus did do an amazing work on the cross, he didn't stay on the cross. While he went to the grave, he did not stay in the grave. The amazing thing is that on Easter morning, there was an Easter. There was a rising up and a getting up. Jesus left the tomb. And if you believe that, the implications of this empty tomb are tremendous. First, it proves for us that Jesus really is God. Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He said that he would, he would suffer and die, and that for three days he would be in the grave, and that he would rise again through the power of God Almighty. Jesus is who he says he is if the tomb is empty. But also if the tomb is empty, guess what? Our sin debt really is paid. Jesus died on the cross to pay the debt that we owed. But the thing is, because Jesus was so righteous, because he was so holy, because his righteousness so far exceeded the, the accumulated sin of his people throughout the ages, that his death more than satisfied the claim that sin and death had upon him, has upon us. His superabundant grace discharged any claim that the grave would ever have upon Jesus' people. The power of sin, that, that, that insatiable hunger for us that had haunted us through the ages ever since Adam's fall, that insatiable thirst for us that had been dogging us all along was satisfied once and for all. Sin was spent. Its, its, its claim was exhausted. And with the claim of sin exhausted, its grip on us through death was broken. The power of the grave was forever broken. Our debt is paid. Do you understand that? And see, if you understand that, what that means is sin no longer has any claim on us going forward. Not only did Jesus die and pay our debt, but he got up out of the grave because there was no more claim. Sin no longer had a hold on him. And if we 
joined Jesus by faith in his death, and if we join with Jesus by faith in his resurrection, we are no longer in the grip of sin. That grip has been broken. And that's actually the point of Romans 6. That's the point that, that Paul is trying to, to get believers to understand. Verses 3 and 4, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, get this, we too might walk in the newness of life. Jesus broke the power of sin and death. He left the tomb. And by faith, those of us who claim him as our Lord and Savior and, and for whom he really did die, we too died to sin. And just as Jesus more than satisfied the claim of, that, that sin had on us and left the grave, we too metaphorically leave the grave. We have the opportunity to leave the grave farther and farther behind the more closely we walk with Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, the tomb really is empty. The tomb really is empty. And so I ask you, do you believe that? Go like this, go like this. Do you believe that? Yes. I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that the apostles believed it. Perhaps the best proof in all of history that the tomb really is empty occurred in the lives of the apostles. What happened right before the resurrection? How would you have described the apostles? Were they boldly proclaiming Christ's death on the cross? Were they boldly confronting the Jewish leaders, saying, you people have, have, have crucified the Son of God? Or rather, were they hiding? At one point, of course, they were boldly proclaiming what they would do for Christ, right? At one point, they were boldly proclaiming that Jesus will follow you anywhere, even unto death. And yet at the time when, when metal was hitting flesh, they were hiding. But what happened a few days later? They encountered the power of the risen Christ. And in the days and weeks ahead, their character changed completely. Now understand, they could have gone back to what they were doing. They could have gone back to fishing. They could have gone back to their various jobs. But they didn't. And so we see Peter standing in front of, of, of crowds, boldly proclaiming God Almighty, Christ raised. He experienced the power of the risen Savior, and it changed everything. It changed who he was. It changed how he addressed the people around him. It changed how he interacted. It, it, it changed everything. It, it, it completely reordered the priorities of his life. And so I ask you, have you encountered the risen Savior? Do you believe the tomb is empty? Do, do you believe that Jesus not only died, but that he rose? Do you believe that the, that the risen Savior left the tomb, and he left the tomb that, so that you will have life and have it abundantly? That is the question. Because if you believe that, then we come to verse 12, and it really does change everything about the way you live from this point forward. In verse 12, Paul writes, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies 
to make you obey its passions. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and paid, and paid your sin debt, but more than that, if you believe that through the power of his, his superabundant grace, he broke any claim that sin would ever have on you, he broke any claim that the grave would ever have on you, and if you believe that you now live with him, then it necessarily follows that sin need not continue reigning in your mortal, mortal body. But that does lead to a very interesting question, doesn't it? Why do so many, so many of us spend so much time in the graveyard? I mean, think about it. If we have been risen with Christ from the grave, if the power of sin and death in our lives has been broken, then truthfully, why is it that so many of us spend time in the graveyard? Truth be told, there are a lot of people who claim the name of Christ who look like they've never even gotten out of the grave. You look at the way they lead their lives, the decisions they make, how they spend their time and their money. And it would be very difficult to see that there, if there's a difference between them and the secular world, the world that does not acknowledge Christ. And then for at least some of them, we would have to say that the odds are very good that they have not encountered the power of that risen Savior. But for even those of us who, who have been working diligently to try to follow the risen Christ, so very often we find ourselves looking back over the shoulder at the graveyard as if those beautiful stones are somehow more inviting than the, than the walk of life that Christ has for us. I'm often so disappointed with myself in that I'll spend time here Sunday morning listening to, to the word preached by, by the pastors. I'll listen to some of the music offered by, by, by Josh and, and the choir or the worship team. And I'll be so moved and so lifted up. Or I'll, I'll teach underground in the evening and I'll be, I'll be so touched by, by some of our young people who ask these deep piercing questions and who are really seeking to, to learn how to apply God's word to their lives. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll be so motivated to think, you know, this is, this is great, God. You and me, we're, this is awesome. Then Monday morning, I'll deal with someone in court or somebody, maybe sometimes somebody on, my, on the hallway of my office, and there'll be one of those sharp words. And suddenly, I'm looking right back in the graveyard. Matter, matter of fact, I'm actually knee-deep in a grave throwing stuff at people. And I think, where did Sunday go? What happened to Sunday? What happened to the Easter, the, the, the rising up? And, and I don't think my experience is unique to me. I think a lot of us spend time looking over our shoulder at the graveyard. And some of us walk back into the graveyard and camp out there for a while. The fact remains, we are in a war. The reason we get pulled back into enemy territory is that there's a war raging. Paul describes in Romans 7, verse 19, that the tension that most of us as believers feel. And if you're not feeling this tension, then it may be that you have already capitulated in that war. But what Paul says really speaks to me. He says, you know what? I don't do the good I want. But the evil I don't want, that's what I keep on doing. And I have to say that when Paul wrote this, he was probably farther along in a spiritual journey than I am right now. So quite frankly, I find this very comforting that, that Paul experienced this tension. 
Why do I do the things that I, I don't want to do? Why can't I do the things that I do want to do? It's because there's this war here. He, he goes on to describe in Romans 7 this tug that the flesh pulls us back and pulls us down. Our old nature, our sin nature keeps pulling us back to the grave. But yet the spirit, our spirit which belongs to God, pulls, is tugging us up, pulling us up. And that tension is at play in our heart. It's at play in our hearts. And, and the expression of that war is, is, is in the conflict we feel. And hopefully over time, the spirit pulls and pulls and pulls and gets us farther out of the graveyard. But we will always have that downward pull of the old nature. And so one point that, that I think we as believers need to bear in mind is that being at peace with God through Christ is a very different thing from being at peace with your sin. If Christ died for your sins, if you have in fact claimed him as your Lord and Savior, and if by faith you, your sins have been forgiven, and if you have, have been raised with him, then yes, you are at peace with God. No longer stand before him condemned in your sin. But that is not to say that you should be at peace with your sin. This war is ongoing. And if, if again, if you are not feeling this war within your own heart, you should ask the question, who's won? Because Paul's very clear that this war is ongoing. And, and, and we will not finally be able to declare victory until we stand in glory before Christ as our king. But in the meantime, this war is serious. And as believers, we're called upon to deal with the sin issue seriously. In Matthew 5, verse 29, Jesus tells us, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And in this passage, Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation. He's not saying if you, if you, you, know, if you have a, a wandering eye that you, know, you should blind yourself. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that sin is persistent, and you have got to be committed to dealing with the sin that's in your life. And you've got to be committed to making sacrifices to deal with that sin. Sin's a serious issue. We have to be committed to dealing with it. And so, if you have claimed Christ as your Lord and Savior, if he in fact did die for your sins, if your sin debt has been paid on the cross, then you've got to get out of the tomb. You have to get out of the tomb. And you can't do it in your own strength. I think the enemy would very much like to, for us to believe that if you have enough self-help books on your shelf, if you spend enough time going to counselors, if you spend enough time doing this, that, or the other, if you just try harder, you'll be able to get out of the tomb through your own power. Paul didn't think so. Romans 7, 24 through 25, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of, of, of death? See, he's feeling this tension. He's feeling this war. Who's going to deliver me from this? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul looked to Christ as the one who can pull him out of the grave. And in that vein, Jesus tells us that we are to take up our cross daily and follow him. This passage I'm referring to in Luke 9, verse 23, it's an image of an execution. 
In the Christian church, we have kind of tamed the cross a bit. We use it to decorate our walls. Many of us use it as jewelry. We have a tame, domesticated cross. But in the Roman world, there were no such illusions. The cross was an image of a torturous death. And Jesus tells his followers, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross daily. You have to die to yourself. Every day, you have to pick up that hammer, you have to pick up that nail, and you have to crucify the old man. You have to put the old man to death. You have to, have, have to die to your sin nature. But it's not just that. We die to that sin nature, but we turn and we follow him. He says, take up your cross, die to yourself, but follow me. We're not to be left in a vacuum. Again, the enemy would like you to, to try harder to be a good person. But the enemy does not want you to follow Christ. Christ says, yes, die to yourself, but follow me. And we do that by reading his word. We believe that all scripture is God-breathed, that this is the very word of God. So how are you spending your day? How, if, you, if you believe what Jesus says, follow me, how much time are you investing in, in learning what he says about himself and about you? Follow me. How much time are you spending in prayer, praying over the scripture, and asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to fill you with good and godly wisdom? How are you spending your time? Follow me. During the course of the week, as you make choices how to spend your time, whether it's, whether it's, it's watching TV or, or surfing the internet and filling the mind with the equivalent of cotton candy, or on the other hand, if you are investing in people, if you're developing relationships, how are you spending your time? Follow me. When you go to the mall, are you trying to numb your senses from a hard week? Or are you investing yourself in, in people? Are, are you, how do you spend your money? Follow me. So we leave the tomb. We get out of the tomb. But having left the tomb, people, we leave it behind. We don't look back. Paul admonishes us to walk in the Spirit. In Galatians 5.16, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And once again, he goes on to explain that, that this, the flesh is at war with the Spirit. The Spirit wants to pull us up to the kingdom. The flesh wants to tug us down. And so if we spend our time investing in the Spirit, instead of investing in the flesh, we will grow. We will follow Christ. And having made a commitment to leave the tomb and to follow Christ, we don't look back. We keep looking ahead. In Philippians 3, 13 through 14, we read, But one thing I do. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How pretty does that grave look to you? I've been to some cities that have some beautiful old graveyards, beautiful mausoleums, but what's inside? Nothing but death and decay. On the other hand, what is the call of Christ? What does he promise uh, promises us as children of the king? We are co-heirs with him. We have been adopted as heirs with Christ. 
we stand alongside Christ having a claim to the riches of God's kingdom. If you understand that, if you understand that, that we don't need to be entangled by our sin, we don't need to be trapped by these same sinful choices, what, whatever addictions you may have, whatever bad habits you may have, what, what, whatever is pulling you back, whatever is tugging you back, leave it behind and look forward to the prize that Christ offers you and run hard after that. We are promised that sin will have no dominion over us. We will feel that tension. We will feel that struggle. We will feel that war. But ultimately, the victory has been won by Christ. He has already won it. We are engaged in mop-up actions in the, in the dark corners of our heart. But Jesus Christ has won the war. He calls us to follow him in faith. Pray with me. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death. Father God, we sing those words this morning and we long, but we know they're true. We long for you to make them true day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute in our sinful hearts. Father, we freely confess that we feel that tug of the old nature so strongly. And sometimes, Father, it's because the things in this world seem so very real to us as compared to the promises you offer. Forgive us of being short-sighted and dim-viewed. Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, clear the dark shadows from our eyes so that we may see your grace more clearly. May we love you more dearly. May we honor you, Father. Father, I pray this week as we look toward that Easter celebration, I, I, I pray that we will all remember the cross, but more so, may we remember that empty tomb, and may we bear in mind what you have done for us, the full work you've done for us, that sin shall have no dominion. We praise you, we glorify you, we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.